turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, please. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, As you're turning there, I will introduce the topic or the passage that we're reading tonight. But first, I just want to read the text and and begin there simply. Uh, Our passage is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. So I will read that now. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. And it came about... When Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations." But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants." He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God. This is the very word of God. And, you know, it's funny, if you take a class on preaching or read enough books on the subject, you will eventually come across uh, guidance, uh, 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 a suggestion, uh, advice, that when you begin a sermon, you should always have a hook, always have some sort of introductory comment that makes people want to pay attention, that, that makes people want to listen to what you have to say. If you think about that advice for 30 seconds, it is categorically absurd. It is categorically absurd. The, the, the idea is absurd that anyone should have to stand up here and convince you or I to pay attention to the word of God. The God who spoke creation into being the God upon whom we depend for every breath, let alone everything else, 
has spoken to us. And, and we frail, dependent creatures, we need to be told to pay attention. We need to be convinced or motivated to pay attention. The, the, the advice is absurd. It's also super common for a reason. We're sinners. That's why preachers have to have a hook or should have a hook or are told at least to have a hook because we do need to be told to pay attention. In the heart of every man, woman, and child is a heart that wants nothing to do with God and that includes that which God says. Even, though, even those of us who are redeemed, who have been united to Christ, who are born again, we have to fight daily hearts that want to suppress, deny, and otherwise neglect the word of God. And Israel, in our sad passage tonight, as we will see, failed to fight that fight. In this text, and we'll, we'll explain this, Israel is facing a legitimate and scary national crisis. It's a really bad situation that they're in. They know they have to do something about it. The situation demands action. The problem is that Israel responds to that situation making an unbelieving, evil, and stupid ask for a king. Why did they do it? They did it because they have neglected 300 years of God's clear testimony to them. They have neglected the written word of God. They have neglected those things, and as a result, they make this ask. Worse, they compound this sin in doing so by abusing the word of God. We'll see that in verse 6. And then faced with a clear, clear warning from God, they ultimately show sin for what it is, and they reject God's word to his face. That, in a a, a nutshell, is our passage. That's kind of what we're going to walk through tonight. This passage is a a warning, and it's a picture for us. Um, We're going to walk through this. There are four sections, if you're taking notes, that we're going to cover. The very first is uh, verses 1 through 4. It is uh, essentially the context. It's the national scary crisis that Israel is facing. After that, we're going to zero in on verses 5 to 8. There we see Israel make this ask for a king, but what we'll see is the root of the issue is really their neglect of the truth, Israel's neglect of the truth. Third, we're going to look at the second part of verse 6 briefly, and we'll see how they twisted the scriptures to make this ask or how they abused the truth. So the neglect of the truth, the abuse of the truth, And then fourth and finally, we will see how the sinful ask culminates in Israel ultimately rejecting the truth. Having neglected, having abused, they will ultimately reject God's word. That's our passage tonight. Let's go to God in prayer and ask that we have hearts that do not do these very things tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have condescended to speak to us, that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would let us tonight listen with humble hearts, with receptive hearts, that you would listen and to whatever extent is is necessary and appropriate, that we would listen with repentant hearts as well. We know that what Israel does here is a, a pattern that we can fall into oh so easily ourselves, whether on a big scale or a small one. Work on us tonight that we listen, we do not repeat the mistakes that we see in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. 
right, as I mentioned, Israel is facing a legitimate national crisis. And I know we are jumping into the eighth chapter of a book in the Old Testament. So in the briefest of summaries to kind of catch us all up, think of the book of 1 Samuel as essentially a continuation of the book of Judges. The book of Judges, as, as you may know, is a story of 300 years of a pretty repetitive and brutal cycle for Israel. Israel has come into the land. They have not cl- uh, cleansed the land of all the nations that they should have, and they are tested. And repeatedly, Israel intermarries or otherwise adopts the idolatrous practices of their neighbors. They fall into gross sin, and God oppresses them through foreign nations, those those same neighbors coming in and taking over parts or whole of Israel. After a while, Israel cries out, they they, they beg for help, and God raises up a judge who, before he delivers Israel, calls the people to repentance, and after having repented, repented, God delivers them. The cycle repeats, maybe not every generation, but over and over and over again for 300 years. And in the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, it happened again. Israel had done this exact thing. The Philistines this time had come in and had conquered large portions of Israel, and Israel cried out to God. Samuel was the judge. He was also a prophet, but he was the judge that God raised up. He is the last judge in Israel's history. And after calling the people to repentance, he delivers them. And after delivering them, the Lord blesses Samuel and Israel with a period of peace. The rest of Samuel's life The rest of his time as judge and leader of Israel, Israel enjoys peace under Samuel. Unfortunately, even the best leaders get old, and Samuel is no exception, and Israel's enemies know this. Uh, Later on in the book of Samuel, there's some passages that point back to what's happening here. If you're interested, it's it's, uh, chapter 9, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 5, chapter 12, verse 12. We know that the Philistines are beginning to come back into Israel. They may even have begun the first fruits of an invasion. More than that, another country, the Amorites, are aiming at Israel as well. So you've got two different hostile neighbors who are taking sight as Israel with Samuel uh, aging out, essentially. War is on the horizon for Israel. And if you just pause for a second and be gracious to Israel here, I mean, think about what's happening in Ukraine right now. This is a legitimately scary situation. It's a legitimately scary situation. Two neighboring hostile countries are getting ready to invade. And if you were an Israelite, if I was an Israelite back in those days, I would probably be looking to my leader, to Samuel, to figure out what he's going to do about it. Which is why it's a big deal that in verse 2, we're told that Samuel has grown old and he's begun delegating his responsibilities to his sons. And sadly, verse 3 tells us it's not working out so well. In verse 3, we read that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, this is a huge deal in and of itself. This is forbidden all over the place. And understand, again, a judge is, is like a, you know, a governor almost, if that, if that helps. Not quite accurate, but in that sense, someone who is leading Israel. And Samuel needs help. He's old. He picked his kids, and they are utterly unqualified. In leadership and government, character matters, faithfulness matters, integrity matters. And unfortunately, Israel's suffering through a bit of a leadership crisis right now, or at least it looks that way. The people would not be big fans of Samuel's sons, which adds to the problem that Israel is facing. So in a nutshell, you've got two 
army or two countries who are ready to invade Israel. They appear close to doing so. Their leader is old. He stopped, probably because of his age, fulfilling all of his responsibilities. He has delegated to his sons who are immoral and worthless. Leadership is questionable. Things are looking scary in Israel. This is a legitimate crisis, and it is appropriate for the men of Israel to want to do something about it. So when we get to verse 4, and we see the people, the elders of Israel, coming to Ramah to talk to Samuel, this makes a ton of sense. There's a problem. They're here to address it. The issue is how they address it. They should have come to Samuel, called out his sons, and asked Samuel to do his job to either Stand up and lead the people, ask God for guidance, something along those lines. Unfortunately, that is not what Israel does. Which brings us to our second section in verses 5 to 8, Israel's ask for a king. Now, I've titled this uh, Israel's neglect of the word of God because that is really what's happening under the surface here. But on the surface, Israel comes to uh, uh, Samuel in, these, in these, these four verses, and they come and make an ask for a king. Um, and in verse 5, it tells us you know, exactly what they, tell, they told Samuel. It says, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now, again, instead of asking Samuel for help or asking Samuel to pray to the Lord for guidance, they ask for a king. And if it's not clear, that's a pretty bold request. That is essentially thanking Samuel for his service and asking him to retire. Now, is that automatically a bad thing? Not necessarily. Again, Samuel is old. He has delegated his duties. Asking him to step down seems like a pretty reasonable, natural next step. And obviously, his sons are pretty terrible. He can't be trusted to lead Israel. Something's got to get done. Surely, asking for someone to step up is not a terrible thing. But if you look at verse 6, it becomes clear that their request for a king was wrong. Now, the ESV uh, renders verse 6, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. The word for displeased there is probably better translated evil or bad. It's, it's a little more literal to say this thing was evil in the sight of Samuel, which I think is how the, the NASB translates it. So this is, this is clearly a bad ask. If you need more confirmation, later on in chapter 12, Samuel talking to the people about this moment says, And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So clearly, this is wrong. Why? Why is this this ask wrong? Well, verse 7 tells us this ask is ultimately, somehow, a rejection of God. God says there, they have rejected me from being king over them. So on the surface, they're asking for Samuel to step down, they're asking for a leadership change, but on a deeper, more spiritual level, this ask isn't ultimately about Samuel, it's ultimately about God. And in verse 8, God goes so far to link what Israel is doing with idolatry. There we read, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So this ask is wrong, it's evil, somehow it's a rejection of God, somehow it's idolatrous. And I think we see how these pieces fit together if you skim down to verse 20. Verse 20 is the first time, really, in this passage where the people explain a little bit more fully what they're really asking for here. And, and notice how uh, the, the sentence ends. The people say they want a king, quote, that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us, and here's the kicker, and go out before us and fight our battles. 
That's what the root issue here seems to be. This is about safety and security. They, Israel seems to be thinking, look, if we can just be like the nations who keep beating us up, we'll be safe. That surely will make us safe. That surely will make us safe. And again, in fairness, 300 years in the cycle of Judges, Israel has been the losing end of a lot of battles. They knew that history. They knew the Philistines had just beat them in their own lifetime. And so Israel seems to be looking around. They're looking at their enemies, the people who beat them, and they see kings. They see uh, better weaponry, chariots, strategists, professional soldiers. Israel has none of these things. They see these things, and they think to themselves, that's it. That's the secret sauce. If only we were like them, we would finally be safe. With their enemy at the gate, with Samuel old and his sons immoral, Israel is scared, and they're looking for something to keep them safe, something to trust, something to depend on, and that something, apparently, is government. They're, or you could reframe this as, as human strength and power and strategy. This is, in the end, not an innocent ask for new leadership. This is Israel being scared and foolishly putting their trust for safety and security in a robust government rather than the God of this universe. This is idolatry and unbelief at its core. They want something they can see and be assured of rather than God whom they, who they cannot see and must simply trust. Israel is facing a legitimate national crisis, and rather than go to God, they're seeking to replace his protection with human strength. Which isn't just evil, it's also completely and unreservedly stupid. I mean, it's, I mean, it's stupid on an obvious level. I mean, what, what government can compare to the God who spoke creation into existence? Like, just honestly, obviously, it's stupid. But it's also particularly stupid for Israel in this point in time and context. The, they're, they're looking around at, at, at the, the other nations and saying, surely this is how we can be safe. And what they're completely neglecting is this 300-year cycle in the book of Judges. They were not oppressed because of the awesomeness of their enemies. They were oppressed because they replaced God with other things. And they're doing the exact same thing here again. The, any oppression they experienced from the Philistines or any other nation around them, it was God oppressing them through other nations. And yet they are completely ignoring these lessons and doing the exact same thing again. Worse, this is not just some story that they heard about in their great-granddad's day. This happened in the same lifetime of the people who are making this ask. The first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel are the people going through this cycle. They literally lived through it, repented of it, and are doing the same thing again. When Samuel was raised up, the first thing he did was call the people to repentance. And only then did he deliver them. This is not just an evil ask. It is utterly, utterly stupid. We have to ask ourselves, how is it that Israel got here? How did they get here? I think the answer is clearly it's by being untouched and unchanged by what God has been communicating to them for centuries now. They have completely neglected God's testimony to them that they, their, their, their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and they themselves lived in the last 300 years. They have missed the biggest and main point from Exodus, from Joshua and Judges. Their ask for a king, as bad as it is, is the result of a pattern of neglect, of human hearts failing to be informed and shaped by the word of God. And brothers and sisters, that's the point I want to spend a few moments lingering on tonight. 
I don't want to skip over or minimize the evils of this ask. It is evil. We can learn from it. For example, we can, we can absolutely see that in times of, 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 of tragedy or, or scary situations, the human heart just naturally wants to make these subtle runs away from God. I mean, we can, we can learn a lot of lessons from what Israel physically asked for here. But I think we need to linger on how Israel got here because it's a subtle thing that we can fall victim to as well. Again, the root issue is the failure to humbly listen and heed the word of God. Now, you may also be jumping right to maybe some of the obvious forms. Yes, uh, you know, for example, if you were to never, ever, ever, ever spend time in the word, that would be a form of neglecting God's word. I mean, maybe a you know, clear application of this tonight. But I don't think that's the type of neglect that Israel was really engaging in here. Look, they, they knew their history. They knew their own story, and we're going to see in just a few minutes, they knew the law well enough to cite it in making this ask. Moreover, the people who have come to Samuel here are the elders, and they didn't just independently wake up one day and say, you know, it would be great if we had a king, and then, you know, show up and then meet a bunch of elders on the way and go, I had no idea you were coming. Let's talk to Samuel together. No, this is coordinated. This has been something that's been brewing for quite some time. There was probably a national conversation about this topic. There were plenty of opportunities to heed God's word, to interact around it, to be changed and transformed by it. Israel isn't being, this isn't a situation where Israel is unaware of content, of the right content. It's them failing to make any effort to really engage with God's truth. And you know, putting this maybe in, in some modern terms and, 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 you know, kind of our situation, we can surround ourselves with the truth and really still have nothing to do with it. We can, for example, going back to spending time in the Word, we can spend all sorts of time in the Word, but read just for reading's sake. We can read with no effort to, to meditate, to reflect, or to apply what we've read. That's very much a form of neglect as well. Pastor Greg mentioned just a moment ago sort of the the body life in this church. We make the word of God central to just about everything that we do as a church, whether that's Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, community groups, Bible studies, you name it, the word of God is central. But we can be regular attenders of all those things and still neglect the truth. We We can show up and let our minds wander. We can show up and play on our phones. We can superficially participate in Bible studies, waiting for the talking portion to get over so we can get to the food and fellowship and the fun stuff. That can be us. We can show up without ever really showing up. And worse, worse, that is, and not only is that a cancer, it's a completely silent and hidden one. Because a person who shows up at every event but does that looks like they got perfect attendance, looks like they're here. This is a silent, subtle, hidden form of neglect. I think that's why it's worth highlighting and lingering on. I think that's what Israel is suffering from here. We can surround ourselves with the truth and still do nothing with it. Stopping ourselves from neglecting the word of God is a fight, beloved, and we need to take that oh so seriously and consciously. Unfortunately, moving on to our third section, Israel again did not fight that fight well. And worse, they didn't just neglect the word of God, they abused it, they twisted it. That's our next section. 
Now, I just got done laboring over how stupid and how evil this ask is. And the text is clear. Samuel thought this was evil as well. So when you read this, when I read it, I should expect to see Samuel do something. I should expect to see Samuel tear his robes, cry out, demand the people repent, something along those lines. They're making this horrible, evil, stupid ask. But he doesn't do any of those things. Samuel sees his request as evil. That's, that's, that's plain in the text. But rather than doing those things, the second part of verse 6 tells us that he prays to the Lord. And notice in verse 7 that the Lord's response to Samuel is to tell him to obey the voice of the people. And I think that implies that Samuel's ask of the Lord is, Lord, what should I do? He asked the Lord what to do. And that's, that's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, if my kid comes to me with some sort of ask to participate in sin, I don't tell him, and they go pray about it. Like, I, I, tr- I try to do something about it. I try to stop him. Samuel didn't do any of that, though. And I think the, the answer to that is Israel's ask is a reference or a citation of a uh, passage in, the old, in, in Deuteronomy 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you are interested in it, it's Deuteronomy 17, 14, and it's a directly on-point provision of the law. Now, in, in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is setting forth the, the rules and the selection for a king in Israel. Um, And it looks like what the elders are trying to do is to get Samuel to implement that section of Deuteronomy 17. Now, I'm just going to read the two verses to show you how similar they sound. In verse 6, the elders say, Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the nations. And then Deuteronomy 17, 14 is, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. I mean, they're, they're very, very, very similar. And so I think the reason why we don't see Samuel reacting the way we would expect him to and the reason why he went and prayed and asked the Lord for guidance is because he understood the elders to be appealing to Deuteronomy 17 here. And it is fair to note that Deuteronomy 17, Moses doesn't say, when you make this ask, knock it off and repent. He does set out a procedure for selecting a king in Israel. So on the one hand, this is an evil ask by the people. On the other, the law does make a provision for the situation. So Samuel goes and asks God what to do. Now, I should be clear. Yes, the law does permit the installation of a king. But mark my words, the the law is not, the law in making a provision for a king is not condoning the ask for a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 is best read as a prophetic statement that is condemnatory of what Israel is doing here. It's kind of like me rough analogy of having a kid who I know is, um, you know, constantly getting drunk and me telling him, look, if you're going to go to a bar and you're going to overdrink, call me. I don't care what time it is. I will come. I will pick you up. I don't want you to, you know, get a DUI or something along those lines and ruin your life. I'm not condoning their sin. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not helping or wanting them to sin. I'm making a provision so that if they do, the consequences aren't worsened. It's not a green light for them to go get drunk. In the same way, in Deuteronomy, God is not condoning the people's ask for a king. He is simply loving his people enough to ensure that when it happens, it would happen on his terms and that his people would be protected despite their sin. Israel should have read Deuteronomy 17 and said, may it never be that my generation or my children's generation make this horrible ask. Instead, they're taking as permission what should be a warning to them. They're taking it as license. 
Israel's neglect of the word of God has now resulted in their abuse of the word of God to make an idolatrous ask, and their sin is compounding. And mark this, brothers and sisters, the person who neglects the word of God will certainly, almost certainly, not be careful when they do pick it up. One begets the other. Now, fortunately, God is a wonderfully merciful God. And despite Israel's idolatrous ask, despite their abuse of the word of God to make it, it, God chooses to show them one last mercy in the form of a warning. And this brings us to our fourth and final section tonight, Israel's rejection of the word of God in verses 10 to 22. Now, in verses 7 and 9, God clearly has decided to give the people what they want. In verse 7, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. And in verse 9, now then, listen to their voice. But the second half of verse 9 says, However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So while God has chosen to give the people what they want, he offers them one final mercy, a warning. The people have asked for a human king, and God is going to tell them what that's going to be like so that they might change their mind. And that's what essentially verses 10 to 18 are. It's Samuel telling Israel why having a human king is not going to go the way that they want. And I think you could probably sum up this whole uh, uh, 18 verses there with the last line in verse 17. The ESV renders it, and you shall be his servants. I think the NASB has it, you shall be his slaves. At the end of the day, regardless of translation, it's not going to be pretty. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, reread the whole section, but I would note that Samuel uses the word take a whole bunch in here. The king will take Israel's sons. He will take their daughters. He will take their servants, their fields, their produce, their vineyards. The king is going to take. The Lord is telling Israel here, you want a king for security? You want to not be oppressed by a foreign power? In doing so, you will be voluntarily subjecting yourselves to oppression and slavery by your own government. Now, Moses didn't do this. Joshua didn't do this. The judges didn't do this. Samuel didn't do this. Israel, in a blasphemous attempt to be free, is rejecting the very freedom that God's rule provides them. And that is just, I think, the perfect picture of sin, isn't it? No matter what sin offers, it never, ever delivers. It inevitably does the opposite. If it promises life, it gives death. Where it promises freedom, you get bondage. Where it promises joy or fun or pleasure, you end up with sorrow. And God is very clear in this passage that this ask of Israel is going to end in sorrow and in pain. In verse 18, he says, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. Now, we we may wish that Israel would have heeded this warning, but they do not. And that brings us to verse 19 and 20 and these incredibly sad words. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When it says the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, this is nothing less than the rejection of the word of God. Israel, at this point, has abandoned God in their hearts. They proposed a system that would abandon God in practice, and they now have rejected God's gracious warning and call to repentance. 
And God imposes judgment in the next two verses by giving them what they want. He imposes judgment by giving them what they want. Verses 21 and 22. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Brothers and sisters, the most terrifying words a sinner can hear God say is you can have what you want. The most, the most terrifying punishment in this life short of death is a person being given over to their sinful desires. And having neglected God's truth, having abused his word to make an evil ask, and having rejected his gracious warnings, Israel got what they asked for, sadly. Now, as we draw our time to a close tonight, as I said, brothers and sisters, in the beginning, this passage is a picture and a warning. Our sinful hearts will push us to do what Israel did here, be obstinate and negligent. And we who benefit from this warning and seeing the consequences that follow have an opportunity to do better, to repent if necessary, and strengthen our resolve to be a people who not only hear God's word, but who truly, in every sense, live by it. But I don't want to end our time tonight that way because the reality is this story doesn't end here. God doesn't withdraw his love or care from Israel. The Old Testament doesn't end in this moment. Yes, Israel rejected God. They rejected God as king and they got what they asked for. And yes, you can draw a direct line between this ask and incredible national tragedy. The splitting of Israel up into two kingdoms, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, you can draw a line between those things and what happened in this text right here. Israel has purchased generational suffering because of what they've done in chapter 8. But from this ask also comes David. And from David we get the promise of a future eternal kingdom in which there's going to be no tears, no sorrow, no pain, and no sin. From this ask, we get the Messiah who, in his first coming, ushered in this kingdom, wiping away the wrath of God for all those who believe. And from this, we get the same Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who now sits on that very throne, who now sits on David's throne and will rule together and will return to rule forever in holy and righteous love. Israel sinned terribly here. And yet God in his infinite and glorious mercy used this to work countless people's good. Israel's sinful, idolatrous, unbelieving ask for a king has resulted in Israel's perfect king sitting on his throne forever. And brothers and sisters, however much we see ourselves reflected in this text tonight, whether it's in Israel's idolatrous ask or their neglect or rejection of the word of God we should conclude remembering that there is no sin that God cannot wipe away. In Jesus Christ, there is no sin you cannot work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. So if we, if we need to repent, let's repent. But let's do so knowing that our king, our risen savior, is on his throne and always will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sad story, Lord. I pray that we avoid the sin of sitting in judgment as if we ourselves are not subject to the very same thing, but for your grace. 
I pray, Lord, that we would have your spirit tonight work mightily in our hearts, that repentance would be made where repentance is needed, that resolution and resolve would happen where resolution and resolve is appropriate, that we would be a people who don't just show up, but show up, who, who care deeply about you, about your word, who make the effort to sit under it, to be transformed and changed by it. And may we see, Lord, I pray, the necessity of that, that it is a fight, that it is an effort, that in your grace, through your grace, it is our calling, our duty, and our joy. And I ask you for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.